2: hello hello how's it going brad mm, good busy yeah all good though you just had a salad how was it it was good kill Noah salad from knife one of my favorite local salads standby salad for brad every time i'm here i have one it is. It's good. It's a tasty salad. I highly recommend it. It is. It is. A, it's a great salad. I went with a whitefish bagel.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Um, I was here, and then I went to the chiropractor, and now I'm back. So pretty exciting stuff. <laughs> uh, That's our life, man. You know everything there is. Yeah. Um. So Brad sat in on this podcast and had no idea what was going on, <laughs> and basically had his jaw open the entire time and could not wrap his head around. What was yeah. happening. Hmm. Which is cool because I knew a lot about it, but I thought it was interesting to see someone's reaction.
0: That's pretty much what I did was sat and reacted.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, so today on the podcast, we have uh, Randy Bly, singer of Lamb of God. And uh, I want to thank my friend Chris Shields for reaching out um, and hooking this up because it's one of the craziest podcasts I think we've ever done. Yeah. For those of you that don't know, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but Randy was... Um, in prison in what is Prague or Czechoslovania because a fan had been killed at a show a couple years prior and ended up spending five weeks in prison and going to trial and he wrote about all this in depth in this book Dark Days which uh, came out yesterday July 14th and uh, I'm reading the book now and it's so awesome I mean the story is crazy but it gets into his alcoholism and sort of his background on the band and then sort of how this whole thing happened and what it was like when it was kind of unfolding for him and he was facing manslaughter charges of five to ten years and for a crime he had no idea even had happened so it's a pretty crazy story it almost sounds made up but it it really happened
0: yeah i mean i haven't read the book but it seems like when you talk about the way that he wrote it which is he kind of wrote it he knew he wrote it while it was happening he knew he was going to write this book so it seems like that's definitely the way to get an accurate description of events to actually be documenting them while they're happening as opposed to 10 years later writing about your life and the drug
2: haze but yeah and that's a cool part of the book there's actual little like notes that he wrote while it was happening that's kind of pasted into the book between chapters yeah and a bunch of photos he shot a bunch of photos while he was there and while he was in town he had a a photo exhibit I went to the day after we taped this and his photos are awesome too he had a bunch of stuff he went down Had a friend who used to work for the subway. So he went down into the subways and was shooting stuff. He's a super interesting guy. And considering like all the shit he's been through and how aggressive his band is, like so nice (laughs) and like funny and like jovial. Oh, yeah. He
0: seems to know that he's a lucky guy.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very appreciative, dude. I mean, uh, but yeah, I had so much fun doing this podcast because I feel like it's a good mix of like really intense. Shit, and then just all like the Christmas, all the goofy stuff he's talking about, with Steven That I guess people with kids can relate to. <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about really. Yeah, we can relate. Yeah, you can relate, right, Brad? Yeah, I like
0: to get a little, you know, family off color in there.
2: Yeah, this is a family friendly podcast. Family humor.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like Family Circus. You remember that? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly what it's like. <laughs> this podcast is like Family Circus. <laughs> like the worst
2: comic ever created in the history of comics. Really, I I I disagree. <laughs> I would say like I felt like Mary Worth and all those like soap opera. <laughs> oh, I guess there's a lot. I guess like a huge... hey, who wants to read a serious comic and read it like three panels at a time for like forty years?
0: The only family circles I remember liking are the ones where you would follow one of the kids around on a little trail. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> I liked all of them. I remember buying the books. No. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was really into Family circuits when I was younger. Okay. Uh, not into Mary Worth though. fuck her Those comics suck <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, thanks so much to Randy for coming by uh, Check out his book Dark Days You can buy it on Amazon, whatever Wherever you can buy books It's out now And uh, yeah, let's get into it Ladies and gentlemen, Lamb of Gods, Randy Bly it's going up- Sometimes we just stop talking and stare at each other <laughs> for cool. five minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming by, man.
1: Thank you. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Yes. And, and were... I'm not joking. I love podcasts. Yeah?
2: Do you, do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Yes, I do. What are some of your favorite podcasts?
1: Well, you know, I liked Serial, of course. Of course. You know, because it was very interesting. Um, and I really like Startup.
2: I haven't heard that one. It's, I know that one.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, it's guy, Alex Bloomberg, who runs... Uh, th- the podcast is about him creating a startup that will be like a sort of umbrella parent company that will uh, produce narrative podcasts, like narrative journalism. So the podcast is him starting his company to start podcasts. Really? <laughs> yeah, and he it's crazy, and he starts with zero money. He was a producer at This American Life, and he quits his job, and he's got a pregnant wife, and he just, like, interviews her all the time, too. You know, she thinks he's crazy. And by the end of the first season, he's got, like, millions of dollars. Like, they, they didn't know how they were going to pay for anything. And then he's got all this money and has to get a partner. And it's it was really quite fascinating. How it, long are the episodes? Uh f- 30 to 45 minutes. And he talks with all these, because he had connections through this American life, he talks to all these billionaire investors. Right. And he like pitches this one guy who's this ridiculously like rich angel investor or whatever. Right. And he pitches him on the street in New York and he's just, Completely falling to pieces because he doesn't know how to pitch him, you know. And then the guy like takes his pitch and throws it back at him, and it's it's really quite interesting. He makes so all- he's
0: he's he's like documenting this. He's doc- it's kind of like a, I mean, it's a documentary almost. It sounds it is.
1: Like. It's a documentary of him screwing up, right?
0: And is it right? all audio only?
1: Yeah, it's audio only.
0: Oh, I'm gonna check this out. Yeah, I yeah, like that. Cool.
1: I like the moth. Yes, you know, because you have yeah. some good stories, and um. See, I, you know, the first podcast I did was with Jamie Josta, and he's a lunatic. He does, like, three podcasts a week or something, you know? Um, So I listened to some of his, because he interviews a lot of my friends, but then he just keeps on putting him out, bam, bam, bam. But one of my favorites, just to listen to for, can we cuss? Absolutely. Shits and giggles, um, (laughs) is, uh, I didn't know who was doing this, but... uh, (laughs) Is, have you ever listened to Ice-T's podcast? No, I didn't know he had one. It is fucking amazing, dude. Yeah. He does it in New Jersey out of his apartment because he lives here because uh, he does the Law & Order uh, right. special victims unit uh-huh. TV show. And it's him and this guy, Mick Benzo, who is one of the original hip-hoppers like Zulu Nation New York back in the old school days right. when it first began. And Uh, they've been friends ever since then. And he talks about uh, television, the news, um, he talks about sports. He talks about, they go back and forth, they go back and forth about a lot of stuff I don't care about. I don't watch sports. And they have a special thing about his TV show, a segment about what's going on with Law & Order. I don't watch TV, period. None of it. I don't care about any of that shit. But it is unbelievably hilarious listening to him. It's like There's very human interaction between these two elder statesmen of hip-hop, and they just crack each other's balls all the time. It's amazing.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
1: And Ice-T is just a really cool dude, too. Yeah, he seems awesome. He's super nice. Super nice. I saw
2: saw Body Count a couple times last year. Yeah. So good.
1: It's amazing. I'm friends with Ernie C and... um, Their guitar player. He was in LA. Great dude. Um, But uh, we played with Body Count in Canada last year. And uh, Jamie introduced me to Ice T and he sat and watched our whole set, him and Coco. Coco was cool as fuck, you know. Which is, it's like weird. I know these celebrity sort of things now because I know him, you know, but I don't follow celebrities. like, Like I'm saying, I don't follow really pop culture. But his podcast contains a lot of elements of pop culture. And I don't know anything about it, but it's great to listen to. Right.
2: Yeah, that's a mark of a good podcast. If they're talking about subjects like I listen to a lot, sometimes like Rogan, Joe Rogan will talk about MMA a lot, and I'm like, I don't care mm-hmm. about MMA, but it's interesting just hearing them sort yeah. of dissect it.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, man. I mean, I mean, that's the that's you know the the mark of a good orator. Is you just get up and sell right. it. But I mean. It's. I highly recommend it. It's called Ice Tea Final Level. I'm gonna check it out for sure. It's funny as fuck. We'll <laughs> <laughs> um, take it.
2: <laughs> I, I was curious. I I was reading sort of um, about Dark Days, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm a journalist, so people all the time are like, "You should write a book." You should write a book, and I'm just like, Ugh, mm-hmm. the idea of sitting down every day mm-hmm. and getting it out—it's so much work. And I was mm-hmm. reading some of your blog posts about like how many words you'd written and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? What was a process like for you? I mean, what, how did you have to get into a routine? Did you have to really discipline yourself? Mm,
1: yes, writing a five hundred page <laughs> book requires a lot of discipline. I can not even imagine. <laughs> I mean, you know, I since I was uh, in my twenties, I used to have been involved in like the fanzine scene. You know, like pre-internet, when the news of punk rock was spread via Xerox. To- handmade things and so I wrote some some short pieces and then i I'd, I'd do some blogs from time to time but I'm fairly undisciplined with that you know um writing a book the, the the worst part of it for me and I mean you probably know this since you are a journalist uh you work on a deadline correct right you know so have you ever just felt like not writing and you just the hard thing to do is to sit down You know, that's the hardest thing to do is sit down at the the table, you know. All of a sudden, housework becomes very interesting.
2: Right, and I'm like, I need to clean up my fridge. Like, I need to do anything else. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. I have never, like, dusted windowsills so many times. (laughs) You know, for me, like, I I, a to write my book, I left Richmond. I thought I was going to write it on tour, you know, Um, but a heavy metal tour is no place to write, I thought I was going to do it in the back lounge of buses. But I shouldn't say that's no place to write. It's no place for me. Like my buddy Alex Golnick from Testament, Uh you know? Of course. He has written... He can write on tour buses. He can write in cafes. I always had this romantic notion that I was going to write in a cafe like Hemingway, you know, in Paris in the 20s or something. And that did not work out that way because (laughs) I can't stand to have people around me when I write, you know? So... I had to leave Richmond. I I grew up in the Cape Fear area of North Carolina, down near Wilmington, part of the time. Uh, And a buddy of mine told me about a very cheap beach house down on one of the Sea Islands down there. And I rented that and moved down there. It's out in the middle of nowhere. And basically, I wrote my book according to the schedule of the tides, because I surf. And so if the if the if the tide is right to surf, if the waves are good then and when in early, then I surf first and then I write. If it's not gonna be good surfing until later, then I wake up, write, and then surf. I did find that uh I'm more productive when I wake up and write early before the rest of the day has a chance to enter my psyche.
2: Yeah.
1: You know what I mean? I'm not a morning person, but I became one writing this book. Because I thought, you know, I used to. I write lyrics at night, you know. Nighttime, nighttime is rock and roll time. I can't write stuff <laughs> th- about like social injustice, and you know, in the morning. <laughs> in the morning, it's like I just like I just. It's an injustice that I don't have coffee. That's, you know? <laughs> but for me, any sort of like serious, concerted effort, any writing effort, is better done in the morning. You know, when my brain is. Not so clouded. Were you just by yourself,
3: or did you take the family, or how's it? How oh no, no, no,
1: no, no. I, I like the wife would come and visit me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like when I re- when I record vocals, I can't be at home. I've discovered that I'm not a normal human being when I do something like a large creative work because I get so into my head, and you know, my wife understands this. I mean, when we started dating like 13 for how long have we been together honey sorry uh, like 14 years ago i guess like like i immediately went on tour a week later so she's used to me being gone you know but like when i record or am working on something if i'm at home i can't like turn it off you know so like when i do a record i'll leave go do the record and then come home because if i'm at home all i'm going to be doing if i'm not in the studio is pacing and talking to myself and thinking to myself and driving her freaking crazy, <laughs> so I moved to the beach to write this book, and then I started kind of. And she would come down for weekends and stuff and visit. And, you know, you you gotta you gotta see your old lady. You have to. Um, but eventually, she started noticing, and I started noticing that I was getting sort of like I was d- displaying every writerly cliche, writerly behavior possible like all the procrastination things you know like we were talking about housework and doing all this running useless errands all that shit and i was talking to myself a lot out loud (laughs) and it was starting to get uh problematic for me i think because i was starting to answer myself you know you hear the old joke it's not crazy to talk to yourself unless you answer yourself but i was answering myself so she brought our cat salad with with her and let me keep salad so salad i would talk to the cat and it helped me immensely <laughs> did salad ever answer no, only only at like uh, eight p.m. sharp when uh, when it was time to eat, be fed. Yeah, <laughs> you know. that's when you know you're really crazy when you
3: understand what the cat's saying.
1: Oh, and our cat, I love him, but he's dumb as shit, so he wouldn't have much <laughs> to say. He's a dumb cat. Most people won't say that about their animals. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, he's sweet, he's so smart. You know, our cat is so dumb, but he is so awesome. He's a big fat. That's larnest. probably
0: why he's awesome. Yeah, know? dude, he's rad. Smart cats are dicks yeah yeah
1: yeah total dicks but he's rad dude. He's, he's he sleeps on his back and, and i never liked cats before i started dating my wife you know, yeah that's a good cat as a dog person
3: are you familiar with the writer she's a, she's a tv writer uh jane espenson you familiar with her she did like some episodes of Battlestar galactica and firefly and she works on that show once upon a time but she has a theory about writing called you do a writer's sprint every day like yeah. if you're writing like give yourself like an hour and just go nuts. And then after that, like you're fine. Like just a forty five minute, like she would call it a sprint. You just write everything as you fast as you can and just it right. adds up.
1: I mean <clears throat> I think for for me, you're talking about the process. Like you know, are you are you familiar with what nano remo is? No. It's National Novel Writing Month. It happens in November. And every year, thousands of people attempt to write within 30 days a 50,000-word novel. And it's within 30 days. It's kind of a a challenge. And people do it when it's not November. So I did it by myself one time in like July or something, you know, uh, just to see if I could do it. And the whole... uh, point of it is to get you out of your own head, the inner critic that stops you, you know what I mean, from getting the words on paper, like you were saying, the sprint, you know what I mean? Yeah. So from that, I learned, I did it once, wrote a terrible novel, terrible, terrible. <laughs> I thought it was going to be like, you know, I was going to be... the. The 20, 21st century Poe or something, you know, sort of gothic horror set in right. Richmond, you know, <laughs> and it's shit. You know, it's so the plot, <laughs> plots are just it's so many holes, and it. it looks like a piece of Swiss cheese. But um, I learned, you know, from doing that that you you, you just have to get words out on the paper, and um, if, like I said, sitting down, you know, once once I got that I could write you know I'm pretty slow with my writing I'm not one of these guys that's like fix it later I'm pretty meticulous with my word choice and that's why there wasn't a lot of rewrites in my book there was just a lot of surgery just a lot of amputations you know everything was there the way I wanted it to be
2: gotcha I mean you know my biggest thing I struggle with is like why does anyone it's different for you I feel because you're in it successful band but i'm always like why does anyone care about what i have to say like Mm -hmm. what's my perspective i mean could you maybe your story is so incredible and could you maybe talk a little bit about maybe the premise for people who aren't kind of maybe familiar with lamb of god or
1: sure um well people who aren't familiar with lamb of god i'm in lamb of god i sing for lamb of god (laughs) (laughs) and we are a heavy metal band and uh of the aggressive nature, so our shows are pretty wild, and in 2010, um, well, no, 2012, we landed, we played in Norway, we were on tour in Europe for the summer, and we played in Norway, and then got on a plane to fly to the Czech Republic, and we flew to Prague, and it was going to be our first show in Prague in two years. We'd only played one show previously, and we landed at the prague International airport and I walked off the jetway and my band did and and we were getting to the end of this long glass jetway and At the end of it they were i noticed they were ushering me and my band to one side in this little glass room, and all the other passengers were going. Off to the other side. And I'm like, maybe it's. And they were checking our passports. I'm like, well, maybe it's because we're Americans, you know, and they're all EU citizens or whatever. But we went to the room, and then there were. I, once I got in there, there were five. Uh, they looked like, you know, like SWAT team guys. They had on face masks. Uh, and they were holding machine guns and had big knives and pointy pistols. They looked like they were to get a terrorist. There were five of those dudes there massive eastern block type guys um, and then three really big plainclothes detectives and this woman who turned out to be a head detective and she asked for me and she said is this you pointed the passport for him holding my passport out towards me I'm like yeah and then she handed me a piece of paper saying that I was being charged with manslaughter uh, in connection with the death of a fan of our band who had attended our one show previously in prague in 2010 said that i had uh he was at the show said he was on stage and i forcefully uh caused him injury pushing him pushed him with the intent to harm him pushed him from the stage where whereupon he fell hit his head went into a coma and died a month later so they said you are being charged with manslaughter it carries five to ten years And we're all just sitting there in this little room, and I'm like, whoa, you know. Did you
0: know that this happened? Of
1: course not. No, of course not. We had no idea anyone had been injured. Right. You know, no clue. It was a heavy metal show. You know, it's just one of, you know, a thousand I've played in my life. Um, and so they took me to jail for three days and then, um, took me, I went to, before a bail, uh, bail hearing, and they asked me, you know, how much can you do for bail? And I'm like, I was thinking, I was like, well, me and the band, we could get together a hundred thousand dollars, you know? <laughs> so he said, okay, $200,000. and sent me off to prison, uh, Pankratz prison in Prague, which was 123 years old at the time. Uh, it's basically falling to pieces. You know, it was kind of like being in a Misfits song. You know, there was a guillotine down the hall from me from when the Nazis had it. Um, so my band paid the bail. The prosecuting attorney raised an objection. So they doubled the bail. You can pay, pay bail twice in the Czech Republic. So they doubled the bail. We borrowed the money. Uh, and they eventually paid it. And I flew back to America. And, um, you know, uh, I went on tour, and they, I guess they, I guess it's indicted. They call you call you back to trial, you know. And they said, "We want you to go back to trial." And a lot of people were like, "Are you crazy? Don't go back there!" <laughs> you know. They then, um, for me, it was to me like the, this fan. He was a fan of my band, you know. Um, and his family just seemed to want some answers to what happened to their kid. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back and and go to trial and see what happens. So I went back and went to trial. And I was there in Prague for a month preparing for trial. Went to trial and was found not guilty. And I wrote a book about it. Holy fuck.
0: <laughs> I would not have gone.
1: <laughs> you don't know. People... I don't
0: trust any court system anywhere.
1: Yeah. But it's not about the courts for me it's like just trying to do
2: I know you try to do the right
1: thing was it man. something
2: you had to think about or were
1: you, you sort no. of knew instantly I knew like, when I was in prison I would yeah. go back if I was called to trial I mean don't think I didn't think about right, like, right, right you know, I, I, of course it crossed my mind I mean, you know when bail came up I was like I didn't know if I was going to be allowed to leave the Czech Republic even after my bail was paid and I, you know I'm in the present looking for a map to try and see where the borders are you know of course, I thought about leaving, so but... did
0: you establish that the story was pretty accurate though that what they said happened? I mean, did this kid get actually get injured at your show? Yes,
1: he did i- but i well no one knows for sure there's all sorts of uh unclear,
0: but did he leave unconscious from the show
1: no he oh. le- he left from the show he he there were there were, God, there were like thirty different witness testimonies, and they were all very conflicting you know um, i mean the the crazy thing is is I barely remembered the show the only one the only remembers why I remembered the show at all was because it was our first time in Prague i 'd never been to Prague before, so me and my drummer and our merch guy went around and walked around I, to take pictures and stuff. you know, I always check out a city the first time i 'm there. Uh, as soon as I got off stage, uh, I got a call from our publicist, Maria, telling me. I love Maria. yeah, Yeah. She kept on calling me and I'm in Europe. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, why are you calling me, Maria? I'm in Europe. Right. Uh, finally I realized it must be something important. The minute we got off stage, I picked up the phone and, uh. And she was like, Randy, Paul is dead. I'm like, Paul who? And she's like, Paul Gray from Slipknot. He's a friend of mine. He had died of a drug overdose, their their bass player. So I remember that. You always remember where you are when you hear someone is dead. And I remembered parts of the show because there was basically no security. uh, And there were kids on stage all night long. And one of them was extremely drunk. And I had to, I, I like actually put him down on his back and yelled at him Um, which in the newspapers there was pictures of it saying pictures of me on top of this guy and he's Throwing the horns, you know, grinning, thinking it's funny, but they're like in the in the newspapers. It says the death grip. You know, was that the guy though? The no. one picture? Wasn't So they, so the same they same all they were like they were like oh he's you know the guy who the picture it was saw all these things. They assumed it was the young man right. who passed away. Saw these newspaper articles, and he's like, wait a minute, I am still alive. Oh, uh, God. And some of the witnesses were saying, oh, it was you know beating people up. They made it sound like I was Bruce Lee or something, just cracking people in the face, you know. He's very aggressive. You know, he was must have been on drugs. So he was sweaty and running around a lot and <laughs> dumping water on his head. I'm like, it, "I'm at a heavy metal show. It's what I do." You know, the, for some reason the the, the the me dumping water on my head came up a lot. Maybe like public wetness is unseemly in the Czech Republic right. or something, okay. you know. But <laughs> The guy saw these things, the the, um, the young man, and he's like, "That's that's not, that's not, that he's that's me. I'm alive." And he came and he testified, and he was like, "I was really drunk and really annoying, and I shouldn't have been on the stage." And he didn't hit me, he didn't choke me, he didn't do anything. Right? He like manned up, you know. So it was a very tragic tragic situation and the young man who died, his family never came at me in the press they never said any negative you know, they didn't they were the coolest people, they just wanted to know what happened to their kid you know, so I mean I mean there were many, many things that went wrong that night you know Um, and unfortunately a young man died as a result of it you know. Um but I did my best to go back and and you know say, hey, this is what I remember, this is what I saw, and um, you know, if I'm guilty, I'm guilty, you know. I can't run from something that serious. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be able to face myself in the mirror. It's,
0: it, you were, oh, sorry. I mean you, it's obviously it's so tragic when this something like this happens. I'm just, just reading like um a autobiography by Duff McKagan. Yeah, I know Duff
1: quite well. Good buddy. He
0: talks about the first time some fans died at a show and really, obviously, you know, really affected him. But like, the thing that you don't, that nobody addresses, I think that, you know, and especially if this is, if you're in the band, you're going to really feel guilty. But like, every night, groups of hundreds and thousands of young people go out and they go individually to little groups to bars and more of them probably end up dead than the key, you know, the number of people that go to a rock show. Sure. You know, like you have a rock show with 5,000 people at it. If you took those 5,000 people and distribute them throughout the city in little clubs and bars, the death toll was probably higher. You know what I mean? But like you put them all together and you get a tragic <clears throat> situation happen and like, you know I it, it, nobody ever like brings it up in that in that light, you know that like this is part of life and it happens, yeah, and it's just that it happened at your show as opposed to over at the Irish bar down the street, you yeah,
1: know? well, I mean, there's also the I think you know it's it's not like it was. In the seventies and eighties, when like punk rock and metal were first coming out, but there's still also the element of of uh, not understanding the particular subculture, you know. Uh, and in you know, the Czech Republic was a communist country up until 1989, yeah. and when they had the Velvet Revolution, right. they were squashed for a long time. Yeah. So, like the judges. There, there's three judges in a check trial. There's a professional judge who's like a lawyer, dude, and there's two lay judges. Sorry, Mike, Stan, uh, two lay judges, and they kind of like are like jurors. So it's a vote thing, you know. Oh, that's um, kind of cool. Yeah, and I don't, and and majority wins. I, from what I understood, most of the time the lay judges just kind of sign off on what the the head judge says. But I have no idea. Whether it was a unanimous vote to exonerate me or not, but all of these people, these three judges who are who are um, trying my case and making a decision on whether or not I am going to go to prison for five to ten years, they grew up in communist era Czechoslovakia where there is no metal scene, you know, and they don't have. They didn't. They didn't have no concept of what goes on at a metal or a punk or a hardcore show. Uh, so that was a huge sort of cultural disconnect, and and it had to kind of explain to them what goes on at these shows. And I mean, they showed a video of the entire first half of the show because someone had a cell phone video. Regrettably, there's no video of this incident right. killed this young man because then it would have been like okay this is what happened you could see it you know but looking at the video i could see that it was like a normal show for us but i think if perhaps you didn't know what a show was like you might think oh that looks really fucked up right you know yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> like, totally like I remember my friend and I, I go off on tangents, you'll have to excuse that's me. What no, that's what <clears throat> this is all about. This is perfect. This is all about tangents. A, a, a it's friend, called off track. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a, a friend of mine and I, back in the day, always used to think of like, well, we were doing a lot of psychedelics at the time. <laughs> like, we always used to think of weird scenarios. And one I always thought it would be, like, we were watching the movie Dangerous Liaisons one night with John uh-huh. Malkovich. Yeah, yeah. You know awesome. that one? I love that film. You know? We were thinking, what a how weird would it be to take a person from that time, from you know, like Renaissance era France, take them if you had a time machine, snatch them out of that time and put them right in the middle of a Slayer show for thirty seconds, <laughs> and then zap gone. them back. They would be they'd think they would, they were in hell. They would think they had gone to hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. So like <laughs> you know that's that's kind of like what like a challenge was to kind of explain to these people like okay this is what happens you know so. I mean, I answered, you know, of course the whole trial's in check, you know, so it's being translated to me simultaneously. My translator was a little person. She was awesome. Oh, wow. So that, and I have to stand in the middle. It made it really bizarre. I'm six one. She's like, you know, three feet and she's. Leaning down, she's trying to translate and all this other stuff and it's happening at the same time and and I'm trying to explain I answered, what is stage diving like fifty times or in my joke, please explain stage diving. Okay. Because, because it doesn't make any sense right. to someone who doesn't understand right. it. They're like, Why would you do that? Why <laughs> would you get on stage and run and jump and hope a bunch of strangers would catch you? You know? Can the can the stenographer read back? Yes. Uh please explain Wall of Death? Oh yeah, <laughs> what is yes. That? Uh you laugh, but that was that was uh that was in the trial. Was there any Wall of Death, you know, like? Shout out to New York hardcore scene, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> of it all, you know, Pro <laughs> Mags, Ball. I just think of it all, set it off. So <laughs> I'm in your hometown. I got to get props for props for due. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, it does, you know, it makes me think of like that Judas Priest trial. And all. it does oh, seem yeah. like over the years, like metal has sort of been vilified. Maybe it's more normal now over here, but I can mm. imagine if
1: it was new to someone, just. Yes. Yeah. If it's, you know, there are certain countries where that scene is opening up. Like. You know, India is starting to get a a bigger scene and metal bands are playing there. And I remember the first time we played in India, we show up and it's an outdoor show in Bangalore. And it's like... You know, like a festival stage, they build it, build the tresses and all that stuff. Like an Ozfest, or or wherever you go, to see a mob- big outdoor outdoor stage. They've built this stage, but it's built out of wood and bamboo, and it's tied oh. together with ropes. Right. It's and they have full truss, full sound system hanging from right. like these huge bamboo poles. Right. It was a mobile stage. I knew what they were doing. But we're playing for the first time in India, and you know, seven thousand people show up in this field, and the barricade is messed up; it doesn't work. So, like, they're they're pushing it back, and then all of a sudden, the army's there, and they're all standing in front of it, like with guns. And I'm like, okay, like this is really crazy right now, you know? I was like telling the crowd, "Calm down," because there's dudes. You know, in, in military uniforms. Because right? they didn't, maybe they they didn't know what was going on. Right. It looked like a riot to them or something. I don't know. It, it was crazy, but that's like a newer country. Where right. That kind of stuff is coming up. So there's some growing pains, you know. But, I mean, trying to explain that sort of subculture to someone who who isn't a part of it or hasn't been immersed in it for a little bit, it's it's, it's hard, you know.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. And you were in prison for five weeks. Is that?
1: Yeah, I was. I was in jail for three days, which was kind of worse than the prison in a way. It was just a dark hole. And then in the prison for 34 days.
2: And I read some of your journals about it, um, which I'm sure this is in the book, too. And it sort of talked about how you did a lot of kind of like meditation exercise. I mean, did that sort of help you sort of get through it, do you think?
1: Yes, of course. In
2: what way? Because I feel like that's something that comes up on the podcast a lot. I'm I'm really into meditation also. Oh, yeah? You do sit? Yeah. Where? What style? I do... I do transcendental meditation, uh-huh. but I also sometimes just do mindfulness stuff.
1: And- right, right, right. Well, I have a friend named Brad Warner who's kind of a um, sort of a well-known punk rock Buddhist author. Who uh, He's actually an ordained Soto Zen priest by a pretty respected guy in, in Japan. And he doesn't even like to call himself a Buddhist, Brad doesn't. Because he? he's like this weird punk rock guy from Akron who was in a band called Zero Defects. They were did some vinyl stuff with Dead Kennedys, like the wow. Peace War Comp and all this stuff. And it's like old school. He moved to Japan and uh worked for the company that made uh, Godzilla and Ultraman, I guess, yeah. cuz he's like a geek, you know. And while he was there, he had already started studying meditation uh in America back at Kent State. He met this real deal Japanese uh, meditation, you know, so Soto Zen priest. And he studied with him and eventually the guy's like, I want to make you a Dharma heir. And he's like, I don't, I just like to meditate. <laughs> you know, I I'm not, don't really consider myself a Buddhist even, you know. But um, he wrote a book called uh, Hardcore Zen, Punk Rock, Monster Movies, and the Truth About Reality. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. And it's like, sort of, uh, explains how he views meditation you know through that prism, it's sort of a memoir, you know so and I, I've gone to a retreat with him and sat with him before, and it's it um meditating in prison was kind of hard, but it it helped me to stay in in the moment. That was the main thing in there uh, was to stay in the moment um, and not start thinking about a nebulous future which I have no control over. You'd sit there and be like, okay, I'm present. I have food to eat. It sucks, but I have food to eat. There's a roof over my head. It's awful, but at least I'm not, you know, in the desert getting shot at, <laughs> right, you know, right. by, you know, by angry uh, Iraqis or something, you know, uh, and no one's killing me right now. You know, no one's stabbing me and I would try and stay in the moment, you know, Um <laughs> And that's kind of what I've tried to learn to do with my life, you know. I'm a rampaging alcoholic, and I got sober about four and a half years ago. So, like, the only way for me to to really maintain that is to not to not think too much into the future or the past. That helped me in prison a lot, you know. But I, you know, I was only in, I was only locked up for thirty seven days. It was very scary. It was very weird. It was a foreign country, but you know. Like I'm in New York right now because I have a photography exhibit, you know, hanging at Sacred Gallery. Um, And uh, Damian Eccles came by the other day. Are you familiar with him? Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. Wes Memphis Three. Yeah,
1: Yeah. he's he's Mm -hmm. a great dude. He helped me unload my show and stuff. He did fucking like 19 years or something. He Uh. meditated a lot in prison, and we did quite a bit of talking about that the other day because you know. When you're on death row in solitary, he spent, I think, the last year of last 10 years of his imprisonment in solitary. Uh, when you're on death row by yourself, you have no choice but to stay in the moment and to find some sort of acceptance of that moment because, you know, they want to kill you, you know. Um, but it helps a lot. And meditation is, I don't know, it's scientifically proven to help your your brain patterns, they say. <laughs> Whoever they are, and that the the nebulous they. <laughs> How is there the, a photo of the prison in your exhibit? Yes, there is. It's old. It's, <laughs> it's an eight, and it's also part of the uh, cover of my book. I wanted the cover of my book to be a picture just of the prison because when I went back to prepare for trial, I was there for a month before the trial started, and I went back and. shot shot some pictures of the outside of the prison Um, and I posted some online and I got some really striking images of it you know and people are posting them people are like why are you going back there like they thought perhaps like I was suffering some sort of Stockholm syndrome or something (laughs) you know it's like why would you go back there and I'm like because it's really awesome pictures and it's like it's that's what I do, I make art out of things that affect me that's what I write about, I don't write about the good times I had at the dinner date with my wife, I write about the tragic things, the things that piss me off and capturing that stuff while I was in Prague was um, was pretty cool but I got this picture of the prison through, you see barbed wire and you see this clock tower uh, kind of out of focus, it was the only Way I had to tell time once a day because I was in my cell twenty three hours a day. They let us out to walk. So I'd walk out and see this clock tower and be like, okay, time still exists. Basically. <laughs> Meditation helps with that as well, you know? Um but I wanted that to be the cover of my book. And I mean, I am best known as the singer of a band. So you know, they're like, you got to put your photo on the cover of the book. And I'm like, come on, I just wanted, to, I want this arty image I took, but I am an autiste, you know? They're like, no, you know, you need to put your picture on it. so, um, I had, uh, Paul Brown, PR Brown of Badal Design Lab merged the two and he's done like, he did, um... Book covers for Marilyn Manson, Corey Taylor, Motley Crue, Nikki Six, He did all that stuff, so he did a pretty cool design of it. But that picture was there. But um, in the exhibit, yes, there's the picture framed as as I Ooh. wanted it to be. You
3: know, I want to I want to pivot with your artistic comment because uh, I'll never to really talk about this with anybody, <laughs> and this is finally the time. <laughs> yes, you are writing music for the Richmond Ballet. Yes. I, I grew up, my mom stuck me in ballet to control my hyperactive disorder when I was a kid. Right. And I actually stuck with it until I was like 10 and then got back into it in college. So right, this is, the, this is my wife's favorite thing for me to bring up with anybody is the fact that I was a ballet dancer. Yeah. So I'm, I still enjoy it, but I've seen the Richmond Ballet. Not yeah. recently, but years and years ago. Yeah, I went to school at JME. I was in Harrisonburg, yeah, yeah, yeah. so we would see the Richmond Ballet. And when I was studying dance there, and um we heard about that and how how did that come about like writing music for cuz it's it's pretty common in new york like radiohead's done some stuff um sigur right. Rose has done with like modern dance companies but sure. heavy metal and ballet man that's a match made in heaven
1: well um i met the the guy who is a choreographer is my friend matt frain and i met him because I actually met him on a street corner. He saw me and was like, oh, you're that dude, <laughs> you know? And Rich, he was wearing like a Slayer T-shirt or something, you know? And we just wound up becoming really close friends. Um, and the he's a professional ballet dancer. He's been a professional ballet dancer since he was, you know, 17, I think. Studied at the Joffrey, all that stuff. Started dancing when he was like 12, um, and he's also a like super metal head, like you're <laughs> listening to like brutal metal. Like he listens to way more metal than I do. So, you know, we met because he's a fan of my band. He recognized me on the street in Richmond. We just became friends and <clears throat> the ballet has its thing called the new works festival, right? Where they, uh, bring in guest choreographers, so from around the world. It's like once a year. And there's four guest choreographers, and they each do a 15 minute piece. Um, and last year they decided to do a New Works 2 festival where they let some of the company dancers try to choreograph. So, um, Matt, I had been doing some music on my own while I was, um, I was on tour just in the back lounge we were actually on tour with Testament and Alex Skolnick from Testament who's a phenomenal guitar player of course uh, I got him to do some weird guitar tracks to some of the ambient music I was waking making and stuff and I was playing this stuff for Matt one day and he's like look they want to let me choreograph for this new works Two festival can I use some of your music I'm liking what I'm hearing because I was just playing it for him. And I'm like, why don't I just compose something for you? So he and I talked about the, the sort of concept, the ethos behind what he was trying to do with the ballet. And I composed music for the new works Two festival and got Alex Golnick to do guitar tracks. And that was just like with the students of the Richmond ballet, the piece he choreographed. But, it went over really well, so this year for the regular festival the artistic director came and said, "Hey, you did a really good job with like the students. Do you want to use the real company and get paid?" And he said, "Yes, can I use my friend Randy to do the music again?" She goes, "Yeah." So he and I worked that out, like conceptualized the ballet together, you know, um like We would talk about the basic movements and he would even, you know, do a little blocking for me. I drew stage diagrams and in my own scribble shorthand would be like, you know, staccato piano part here or whatever, mapped it out. And then I wrote it um, and recorded it. On three different continents while I was on tour (laughs) and mixed it in Australia and sent it to him and then got back uh, from Soundwave Tour. Actually, I got back from Bali because we ended in Indonesia and I went surfing for three days in Bali. And then I got back and took a shower and went to the Richmond Ballet and saw this thing we had created performed. And it, you know, got mentioned in Rolling Stone and stuff. And it was incredible. It's very nerve-wracking to see, like, your music, like, I mean, it's beautiful, see something you created performed by these highly trained professionals, but it's nerve-wracking to have it. I'm used to having my music performed in front of, like, metal hits, where they're going to be like, yeah, you know, I mean, I know they're going to dig it, because right. we have a fan base, but these are serious, like, serious fucking art people, you know, like, people that probably would cross the other side of the street if they saw me because they're like you're in ballet you know and you're some sort of hooligan or whatever you know and it was interesting to watch them watch their reactions to it you know is That's that very answer? cool and yeah.
3: is that something that they're gonna keep in like, like repertoire you know like they have piece the right, be taught?
1: they have the rights for I think eight years you know to, Wow. to to do it, which is cool by me. Um, but the, and the, the, the idea that Matt and I have, the choreographer and I have is to get some sort of budget and a decent film crew and sort of film these two things as an extended dance narrative, like, like in the real world, not in the studio, you know, because the dance tells a story. It's about, you know, personal struggle. Um, (laughs) And we'd like to hire these people to, to do this, like, out in the real world, you know, with no, like, okay, clear the set or anything. We, like, just want to film them and, like, have people watch, you know, see what happens with the interactions, let it kind of flow. That's, it, that's
3: not an uncommon thing for ballet. I think ballet has the cachet. They, they would do this in, in England a lot where they would get a ballet group to go to a museum. Yeah, and let people dance while people were looking, and it was part of the show. And I went to a piece in Brooklyn. Friend of mine is a choreographer out there, and they rented a building and cleared out the building. Right, and the piece went through the building all the way to the roof, down to the basement, the whole thing. Yes. It's weird. People like, for, for any, anyone else, you say, well, I want to do a punk show. No way. But ballet, like, can we do this? People go, yeah, I think we can make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: that's funny, man. I mean, yeah. it seems like you have so many, you have you know, the photo exhibit, you have, you know, the book, the band, this ballet. It seems like you have so many creative outlets. I mean, what sort of pushes you to kind of keep doing these new things? I'm sure your band's successful enough where you could just hang out when you're not on tour and just surf or whatever. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean... I guess like you know I was so, such a brutal alcoholic like for 22 years that I guess it just kind of put a plug on my in my brain or whatever you know it kind of um, dampened the the creative aspect of my mind I mean I still did creative things but when I got sober and after a few years of being sober like it uh it just started flooding, you know? And I think, like, doing art in, in all different forms, it's my attempt to understand my life as it is right here, right now, in this moment. Like, when when I was in Prague waiting for trial, it sucked, right? But I was every evening out shooting photos, and I bought this... Marionettes are a part of, a part of Czech culture, right? So I bought this... Uh, marionette of this devil and at night I started carrying him out and um, filming him doing things in in like in the night in Prague and it really Prague is magic at night so it looks really creepy you know and towards it was about time to go to trial I started editing this footage together and I wrote a weird sort of electronic score that I put to it interspersed with like shots of the city and and shots of myself i filmed everything edited and wrote a score and put together and it was my idea was that i was going to post it on the internet the night before the verdict was to be delivered because i wanted to show that as an artist you can work under any circumstances and like you can create compelling art even in trying times Right. So I had it all ready to go. And I talked to my lawyer and I'm like, I want to post this. He's like, let me see it. And he saw it, and he's like, are you fucking insane? (laughs) It's like this weird, like dark gothic thing with this puppet who's sort of representative of me, you know, like, and he looks like Satan, you know, and he's like, they already think you're fucking crazy. What are they going to think when they see this? But you can see it. On the, I posted it after I returned to America. You can see it on my blog, randonesia.tumblr.com. It's called Prague. The devil is the details, <laughs> not the devils in the details because devils have a really important. Um, they're an important part of Czech folklore, and they're they're different in folklore than they are like in our country, where the devil is like the Christian Antichrist, like sort of thing. Devils are sort of like buffoonish clowns, and I kind of felt like a buffoonish clownish, clownish puppet. I didn't really understand what was going on over there. A well, lot
3: these time. are the cultures that come up with Krampus you know? Yes, Krampus. I fully fucking back Krampus. Krampus rules. Yes. What dude. is Krampus?
1: Krampus is like the fucking G Santa, man. He's like he's like he fucks you up. Like if you don't
3: All the all the shit about like you get coal in your stocking and all that, that was Krampus. That was like so you had the good Saint Nick story and then you had and he looks like the devil. He's like fucked up cloven feet. Right. Like he's got the horns. Um he's uh he's black, which is Turned into certain parts of Europe, pretty racist. Yes, as but, in
1: uh, Holland, Holland like,
3: especially, yeah. and and Belgium. It's it's insane, but it's it's uh, Krampus is. I think Kevin Smith is doing a Krampus movie.
1: Yeah, he carries like switches. Rules. Like okay. he'll show up and beat you. Do he's you know Krampus. about? Do you know Whoa. About, What? The, sorry, there's
2: just, a photo of Krampus. He's showing up. Oh, he's here. pulling up and Krampus. I
1: thought we had had like a Krampus meltdown. <laughs> <All right. laughs> right. Do you know about Yolapuki? No, but I have to. Okay, <laughs> this is Fit This is the Finnish Santa Claus, right? And there's I'm friends with this band from Finland called Children of Bodom, right?
3: Oh yeah.
1: And we were Under just the ju- band
3: that changed their name to get out of their contract.
1: No. Okay, sorry. No. <laughs> uh, they. They. Uh, they. We were talking about Christmas when we were on tour one time, and they started telling me about Yolopuki, and. What happens, <laughs> Yolopuki, <laughs> right, the, it means uh, Christmas goat, right? And it's sort of, I guess it's probably descended from Krampus maybe as well, you know. Probably there's all these cultural tie-ins, but Yolopuki shows up on Christmas Eve and he... They, they were telling me about their experience with Santa and I'm telling them about like Santa, you know, you go and you sit on his lap and you ask him what you want and he's like, yes, you can have this little boy. Be good. Ho, ho, ho. And they're like, yo, our, our Santa Claus is not like that. You know, the bookie comes, right? On Christmas Eve for these little kids and he comes in and he's got a big stick and a long beard and a sack on his, on his, um, on his back and generally he's dressed like a bum and he shows up at Christmas Eve and knocks on the front door knock 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 with his stick and then he comes in and the parents let him in oh Yolapuki, you're here you know and then he comes in and the, he like points the stick at the little kids like have you been good this year you know and threatens them and so forth you know and eventually gives them presents but he's kind of like a bad Santa incarnate you know who shows up And my friend uh, Yane was telling me about how terrified he was of Yolopuki when he was a kid because every year this disheveled dude with a big stick shows up on Christmas Eve and starts banging on your door demanding to know if you've been good or not and he finally figured out that Yolopuki wasn't real and that he was his neighbor because he saw him in the basement drinking vodka with his dad earlier in the day <laughs> right <laughs> and so he, Yane has, a, he has he doesn't have his own kids yet but he has a nephew and I saw him a while back and it was getting close to Christmas. I'm like, oh yeah, man, Yollopuki is coming. He's like, yes, I get to. He gets to be the Yollopuki this year, you know. So to like to go scare his nephew, he's really pumped on it. But Yollopuki sounds fairly terrifying, you know. Yeah, we're 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 missing the fear here. Yes, we need shock and awe Christmas.
3: Yeah, (laughs) it's funny. This is like the first year my kids, who are four, like really like got on board with, like, oh, this is Christmas. We do stuff, and I was, like, telling my wife, God, I feel so complicit in this horrible lie, like, this betrayal.
1: (laughs) Yeah, okay, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. All right, dude, this is, (laughs) this I am really against. (laughs) Elf on the Shelf. Do you have one? Yes, you fucking do. I see it (laughs) on your face. What's
3: his name? Uh... They named him GABA. Now, let me... Let me, no, side, let me quantify.
1: The, you the, have the a Christmas was, narc in your
3: house. My wife knows <laughs> how much I hate this thing. <laughs> and so when I hide it, I fucking hide it. Mm-hmm. And, she, and she's like, we're going to read this story. And I read the story and I went, we're never fucking reading this story. Uh, yeah. Like the story, because I don't like this whole, you know be good to get shit kind of stuff like just be good that's my favorite part because i love christmas i mean i'm the most hardcore atheist i know and like that's the one line of santa claus is coming to town be good for goodness sake Yeah, just be good like that's what it is for me you know what i mean so i'm like just be just be don't be assholes right the thing my wife and i agree most on with our kids just don't be assholes right and so the elf on the shelf god it was it was one of those um I call them compromises, which means I don't get what I want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the alphabet. Okay, show. all right, Keep let me it break out of your it. Damn house, down. Brad, don't do it. <laughs> Catherine won't let you anyway. Do you
1: Do you have kids? Yeah. Oh, how old are they? They're uh, three and seven. Ooh, and you don't know what the elf on the shelf is.
3: Don't don't ruin it. (laughs) Keep it away from him. Don't
1: fucking do it, dude. My (laughs) friends. What the okay? Elf (laughs) on the shelf. Okay, (laughs) is a very clever marketing thing, right? This woman wrote this story for her little family Christmas tradition. She got like this little elf, right? And for her kids to make Christmas more magic, she would every night she would. Take the elf and put him in a different. As it's, it's you're counting down to Christmas, like I, how many days are you supposed to do it? Like the month before Christmas? It
3: it, it it's it's basically a. a... It's basically an advent calendar for right. people who need a new idol. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So okay. they,
1: you take this little elf and you can buy it and it comes with a book and instructions and you hide the elf in different places around the house in the middle of the night. And when the kids wake up, they're like, oh, they got to find the elf. And sometimes the elf has like been in the kitchen and he's like made a mess and he's dumped marshmallows everywhere or, you know, people do all sorts of crazy creative things where they hide him. But the kids can't touch the elf. Right, and (laughs) if they touch the elf, the elf's magic is, you know, poof, and they flies back off to the North Pole. But the elf, the purpose of the elf, is he's a monitoring device for Santa. (laughs) He sits there and watches the kids make sure that they're good. And if they're good, then they'll get Christmas. You know (laughs) what I mean? So you have a fucking narc in your house, a little red narc. (laughs) And so this year, this not this year, but last year. I was like, "Fuck this Elf on the Shelf thing!" So I went and bought one, and tortured it for the days leading up to Christmas. Nice, and did a whole series of Instagram posts about it. I uh, want them. Yeah, my elf was named Wendell, and like, I I took him to Africa. And I beat the shit out of him in Scotland. <laughs> like, I body slammed him on stage and all this filming, like, and it goes on after Christmas because the motherfucker needs to be punished, right? Don't stop.
3: I think they call that voodoo in certain yeah. cultures.
1: Yeah. Basically, he's, like, all, like, held together with, like, gaff tape now because I fucked him up so bad. But this year, I didn't bring him out and people on my Instagram were going nuts. They're like, where's Wendell? he, oh, you know? Like, I buried him in his up to his neck in the surf, you know, and, like, just did all sorts of horrible... I, like, had him tied to a string on the ceiling fan, so he spin around. and I was burning him with hairspray. Like, shh, yes. shh, you know. I and all up. these, all these parents are writing me on the Instagram. They're like, "Yes, yes, fuck that little motherfucker up," because they hate the elf on the shelf. The I, like, I love it, There's only one positive
3: thing that ever came out of it, and it happened to my nephew. Is that he? Because we don't do the monitoring thing. Like he just hangs out. You right. know what I mean? That's you what he does. He's not staring at you. Can they touch but- him? uh that was my caveat my friend his wife like they let the kid touch the elf and so all these other kids would come over and get immediately horrified which i thought was really funny (laughs) yeah but it helped with my my sister-in-law because my my nephew went up to the elf and said hey can you remember to tell santa that i want this and it was like the complete opposite of the big gift they'd gotten him for christmas so she overheard it, you know, through her eavesdropping, you know, nest. But like, right. so the elf actually assisted in not ruining Christmas Day for this little girl. Ah, good. That's that's the one positive I've ever heard about it. Otherwise, they should be called Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a culling of the elves <laughs> on the shelves. And it's just a marketing thing. Right. And then, yeah. of course, and then they've now they've because and then, of course, because it's Christmas and and, you know, we live in the politically correct era it's pretty awesome you know now they're getting ones of of different color elves of color you know with, with, with glasses with, <laughs> and with, gla- with or without glasses <laughs> and for the jewish people my friend rabbi stick i have a rabbi by the way i'm not jewish but i do have a rabbi um and i'm i'm not i'm not Of the Judaic faith. But I just have have one in reserve? Yes. Every every good boy needs a rabbi. And I have one. You know? I have a moyle. So I have have... a rabbi, but he was telling me about they have the minch on the bench. So it's like the Jewish version of the (laughs) elf on the shelf, and it's like this like guy, like this rabbi sitting on the bench or something. It's a real thing. It's totally ridiculous. There's like multicultural Christmas narcs everywhere though, and Hanukkah. Arcs. So, like, <laughs> don't do it, man. Don't buy it. Is the into one for
3: it. Kwanzaa a cop? Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> brutal.
1: Brutal. Uh, the
3: last
2: thing I was wondering about is like, I know that you weren't sort of doing enough it. of your nonsense. Let me interrupt
1: here and re- hey, really us <laughs> talk about art. I, I
3: actually uh, have to bolt. I have to go pick up my kids. Randy, this has been amazing. It's so good to see you. I'm uh, glad you're not in prison. Uh, so. Thank
1: you. Me too. I'm, you know, good luck with the Elf on the Shelf this year.
3: Oh, I have some plans now. Thank good you for that. Good, good. <laughs> All right, dudes. Man. Cheers, man. Yeah, hey, time, sorry, know. I
2: know you weren't sort of doing a lot of press about this, what was happening and sort of after it. I mean, why did you sort of decide to write this book and sort of tell this story kind of
1: now? Why did you think it was important? Well, I knew I was going to write the book. Like the second I was arrested when I was walking through the Prague airport, Is Fucked up as it was, I started thinking I'm going to write a book about this one day. This is too bizarre, not you know, this is such a weird thing. But I, when I, when I, I when, when I was found not guilty, um, our booking agent, this guy Tim Bohr, started hitting me up like, a, a, like a month, not even a month after I got him. Mean, he's like, Randy, a literary agent wants to talk to you, and I'm like, oh, I'm like. I don't, I, you know, I'm not ready to write about this yet. And I'm already had been talking to a publisher about doing a photography book. I had that in line, you know, I wanted to step away from it. So my friend, Tim, our booking agent just kept on punishing me with this. And our manager was like, Tim keeps on calling. I'm like, okay, Tim, I'll talk to you. He's like, look, I want you to talk to this literary agent. He really wants to talk to you. He's the real deal. And I'm like, he wants to talk to me about Prague. And I don't want to do that. And he's like, just talk to him, you know. And I'm like, okay, there's a favor. So I talked to my agent, my now agent, Mark Gerald, and he, you know, it, it is a compelling story. Um and I'm like, you know, I think one day it'll make a great story. And the and the basic, I guess, theme, if there's anything underlying the whole book, the, the story of my being arrested going to prison, all that stuff, it's just the framework that carries the theme of the book, which to me is one of personal accountability, which is something I think is sorely lacking in today's world. Everybody wants to point the finger at someone else not take responsibility for their own shit, you know, um, which I understand because I did that for years, drank it away, but eventually it catches up with you. But I, I was talking to the agent. I'm like, I think this... He, he's telling me like yeah this would be a great book and I, I think it would help people I'm like yeah I think the story can help people and I, I talk about my alcoholism stuff so I'm in there too I mean it's a rock memoir who doesn't talk about alcoholism <laughs> nothing groundbreaking or anything you know we all know how to get drunk but um and I talk about some other things but I'm like you know it just seems like to me the theme of the book is overall like it's okay to do the right thing even if it's scary what I felt ethically was it was driving me to do the right thing. And so I went through all that with the agent. I'm like, but man, you know, I'll do this one day. You know what I mean? Right now, I just went through this shit and I want to chill, you know. And I have this diary I kept in, in prison. And, you know, I still have the memories. And he just, on the phone, he has a soft-spoken guy. He was just like, Randy, the memories are going to fade. And I'm like, you're right, you're right, the memories are going to fade. And there's a a scientific principle, uh, the theory principle known as the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, which postulates that if you don't constantly review information, you lose it. That's why you can't like read a textbook once and then ace a test the next day. And I'm not going to constantly review all this shit being in prison because... Uh, you know, and going through all this, I mean, of course, I think about it, but I'm not going to review it constantly. I'm going to review it as little as possible because <laughs> it wasn't fun, you know? Um, so he kind of convinced me that if I was going to do it, I'd better do it now while I actually have very clear memories of it. And I have very sensory memories of the prison, you know? I can remember what it smells like. It's crazy. You know, so that was one reason, um, to do it. You know, I didn't want to, but this agent convinced me to, um, and another reason that to do the book, uh, is simply from a personal viewpoint, uh, people, because I'm in a band, I'm going to do press, I do photography, I'm going to do press for that. I do ballets, I did do press for that. Always attached is the, this dude went to prison in the Czech Republic. So the number one question is like, what was prison like? And now I can say, I wrote a book about (laughs) it. (laughs) There there you go. (laughs) And I mean, the money and, and, you know, I mean, writing books is not the way to get rich. You're a journalist. Right. You know, I mean, unless you're Stephen King, you aren't going to make a lot of money, you know. Um, and I have no illusions that my book is going to shoot me into the ranks of Faulkner or Hemingway or anything. It's, it's a well-written book because I'm a fairly smart guy and I read a whole lot. But it's not high art, you know. Um, but it, it, you know, it's, I never wanted my first book to be about something like this. But life sometimes presents you with these things, you know, and you have to take advantage of them if it's right. Like everything I've done, like my band, they, a friend of mine asked me to sing for my band, you know, and I eventually went and tried it out. I was like, I don't want to sing for this band because we were in a band before together and it sucked. <laughs> and eventually I went and tried out. I was asked, you know, I was willing This ballet thing, I was asked. I was willing. This photography exhibit, I didn't say I want a photography exhibit. This gallery owner contacted me. Asked. I was willing. This book, I didn't, wasn't like, I'm going to write a book. This guy's like, write this book. Let's do this. I'm willing to do it, you know. If it's right, you have to take advantage of it.
2: Wow. That was pretty (laughs) intense, wasn't it, Brad? So... Here we go.
0: You get it that I'm I'm very I'm a busy guy around here these days and like, but he, I, so I don't always pay attention to who's coming in, you know. And sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised, like when you know Joey Lagwagon showed up the day that I hadn't seen that guy in whatever twelve years. Um, that was an awesome, pleasant surprise. This one. Not only did I really, I didn't look it, I didn't research it, I didn't know what this was going to be about. I thought it was just going to be this dude from a metal band talking about
2: it. one of Jonah's loser friends.
0: <laughs> it was, it yeah. As Jonah said at the top, I basically sat there with my mouth open for the entire podcast recording.
2: Yeah, it was pretty intense. Um, And it's cool. Like, I feel like Randy didn't talk about a lot of this stuff after it happened, probably for legal reasons or just because he was sick of it or didn't want to think about being in prison or whatever. But uh, yeah, it seems like some time has passed. He has some perspective. And yeah, the book, um, Dark Days, if, if you're interested in this podcast, basically everything he talks about here, he goes way more into detail with in the book. And it's if you think this podcast was interesting, the book is like 100 times more interesting. So check that out. Check out his artwork. Uh Lamagon has a new record. They just released a song from I think. I think that's dropping really soon. Not that Lamagon needs <laughs> needs our help promoting them. <laughs> but if you're interested in following, you know, what else Randy's working on, that's cool. Uh Brad, what are you what are you working on?
0: I'm working on building a recording studio in Boston. How is that? For rubber tracks. Yeah.
2: Boston rubber tracks. Should be open by the time this comes out,
0: we'll hopefully be open because if we're not, I will be dead.
2: Wow, so let's hope that the studio's <laughs> open and Brad isn't dead.
0: It's a gorgeous studio. It's right on the water. Yeah. It's near the TD Garden in the New Converse uh, headquarters. It's pretty cool. It's going to be cool. It's going to be the same deal as here. Bands, free free recording every day.
2: That's awesome. You got a, a nice board.
0: Yeah, Rupert Neve Designs, 5088, 32 inputs. Nice. It's pretty sweet. Oceanway monitors.
2: You got uh, flying faders in there?
0: No. No? I'm going to go for that shit. use <laughs> Pro Tools for that.
2: Okay, that's fair. Uh, what am I working on? Uh, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, when you're listening to this, the United Nations will just return from some Midwestern tour dates. Uh, so hopefully that went well. Uh, and yeah, just writing. You can check it out com. We've got some new sound devices coming out right now. Yeah. They're above average. And, uh, I guess this podcast you're listening to now is one of these. Still cranking it out. Yeah, we're still doing it week after week, week after week. Um, this will be in the 160s. This will probably be like 165, seven or something. Yeah, something like that. 160s. Yeah. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to support us, could have gone Off Track. Donate a dollar. Yeah, why not? Yeah, you you, uh, you give a dollar to someone who opens a beer can for you, <laughs> and that lasts only seconds. Uh, But this is hours, hundreds of hours of enjoyment. So, uh, yeah, go to Going Off Track. You can donate there if you want to help us pay for our server costs. um, Or leave us a good review on iTunes. Or tweet at us. Or just tell your friends about it. Yeah. I got recognized in the train for today. Some, I was sitting next to someone on the train. They recognized your voice? Well, I sat down and the guy next to me, I looked over and he had a piece of paper open and he said, are you or the host of Going Off Track? I'm a big fan. And I said, hi. And it turned out it was my friend Oliver just fucking with me. <laughs> but for a second... You felt special. I felt special. <laughs> so yeah (laughs) so yeah make me feel special again even if it's just a joke and then I feel super sad Uh, we'll be back next week with someone else super interesting Um, yeah check out Randy's book Dark Days check us out online and have an awesome week